every time you get a chance to support someone making something, support the makers in your community, support the people investing in jobs and growth. You know, for us, forestry jobs, local jobs, they are sustainable jobs. And so I think that there's a lot of growing that we can do by coming together as communities to make stuff that's worth buying and stuff that's worth making. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. I'm Todd Miller of Isaiah Industries, manufacturer of specialty metal roofing and other building materials. Today, my co-host is Seth Heckerman. Good morning, Mr. Heckerman. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's the afternoon, but it's been a long <laughs> week, so you're, you've lost just track of it at this point. I understand. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was trying to be presumptive and assuming everyone listens to our podcast in the morning. And uh, you just ruined all that. But that's something I'm thinking. Because that's like, when we listen to it. During our morning workouts, we're so diligent and disciplined. Exactly. With. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've got three one-liner jokes for you. I don't know if these are called dad jokes exactly because they're just one-liners. No opportunity for you to uh, participate. I'm sorry. I will share them. Yeah. Okay. I used to play piano by ear. Now I use my hands. Works a lot better that way. Sure. Did I ever tell you about the time I worked in a pencil factory? I don't think I ever did tell you about that, did no, I? No, I don't think so. You know, one day I got creative. I made a pencil with two erasers. It was pointless. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just going to stop at two of my head. <laughs> <laughs> second one wasn't too bad yeah it got it did get a little better but it's it's all downhill from there so let's let's go forward yes i'm looking forward to this conversation great uh we've got our challenge words so everyone both seth and i and also our guests all have a challenge word uh that we've been given and challenged to work into the conversation so audience members you can be listening to see if you pick up on strange words we use and uh at the end of the show, we will reveal our success or lack thereof and what our words were. So going forward, today's guest is Britta Teller. Um, Britta is co-founder and chief sustainability officer of Stellar Floors based in Tyrone, Pennsylvania, which is North Central PA. Stellar Floors manufactures one of the most sustainable hardwood floor uh, systems in the world. Uh, they source local hardwoods that are milled using wind and solar-driven equipment, and they also do that in a way that reduces wood waste. Additionally, uh, their patented technology, and I think this is fascinating, makes wood floors easy to repair, replace, and reuse. As part of her work there, Britta is continually raising the bar for sustainable manufacturing of building materials. She has a PhD in ecology from Penn State, and is truly working to disrupt and forever change the world of building materials. Britta, thank you so much for joining us today on Construction Disruption. Uh, looking forward to a good discussion. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Well, let's jump right in. So kind of interesting, your career really kind of started in, in academia, you know, being a, a professor and so forth, and then you pivoted into manufacturing. I, I don't think that, that happens all that often. <laughs> Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be co-founder of Stellar Floors and um, what drove you to make that kind of pretty dramatic pivot. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I thought I was going to be a professor. In fact, I did it for two years. I just fell in in love with the natural world when I was a teenager. And so, and I also loved my educators. So everyone who was a teacher to me growing up, I looked up to so fervently. I wanted to be just like them. And then I pursued that sort of following my role models uh, all the way through a PhD program at Penn State in ecology. I studied plants here in North America, and I studied how seeds float on the wind. Um, I studied invasive plants. It turns out to be mostly math. (laughs) So (laughs) Really? That's interesting. It's all calculations and probability and statistics. But I did chase quite a few seeds across fields to to get the data. <laughs> and I I went through the whole thing. I was on the right career track and everything. And in the meantime, I fell for my husband at Penn State uh, in the biology department, and he was apprenticing with his dad in the wood products industry. And one day they just dreamed up what would become our flooring invention. Back in the day, it was kind of hard to 3D print things, but they prototyped it. And my husband and his dad are not, I don't know, business people. <laughs> They're inventors. And we thought for a long time about who else could potentially make this flooring. And, you know, we had fantasies about, you know, maybe some big flooring company will want to license it or or maybe we can contract it, you know, just snooze on a beach somewhere. <laughs> but when we thought through the reality of what that looked like, and how strongly we felt about the environment and doing things locally and helping our local supply chains and and supporting regional forestry, we knew that we couldn't accomplish what we felt so strongly in our hearts to be the right thing while also not doing it ourselves. And so we took out what was a $50,000 car loan because we only had one car and we bought a bunch of equipment and started making flooring in a small garage in the town that Evan went to high school in. And since then, we've been growing living wage careers in craftsmanship and manufacturing in our community. I'm sure you guys are, I can see the smiles. You guys oh, yeah. know the drive of creating things and making things. And since, you know, the invention itself has so much promise to change the way we think about flooring. That's where I've really found my home is helping sort of disassemble what we think of as flooring. It's not, you know, a sort of trash to be thrown away. Like it's another chance to make something wonderful and, and value it. Very neat. Such a cool story of blending those passions for, you know, ecology that's always been with you to new products and manufacturing. I'm curious, what are, this sounds very like a pun. I don't mean it to. So the roots Please. of your passion in, in ecology. <laughs> yeah. So is that something that's been with you your entire life since playing in the backyard amongst the trees and grass and rhubarb? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we do have rhubarb plants in our yard, in fact. <laughs> I used to fish for crawdads when I was a teenager. You know, I I love being out in nature. So that was definitely at the root of where all of my passion came from, I think. One year, I even got a telescope from Old St. Nick. It was, uh, you know, my passion for the natural world is very intense. So, Very neat. How many years ago was it that you developed the flooring system? Yeah, it's an incredible, funny moment for us. We applied for the patent the weekend of our wedding in 2014. So um, we were so excited about it that Evan stayed up all night 
what, Thursday or Friday. And then we got married on Saturday. Um, <laughs> I was, I don't know if I was angry. I was distracted too. So maybe he got away with it. I was planting flowers and things. <laughs> um, but, you know, we never, we never expected to get the patent. Who gets a patent, right? And when, so I pursued my career in parallel and and realistically, the only reason we applied at some stage, Evan said to me, you have, you're in a PhD program, you're going to be this, you know, hoity-toity academic, like what degree should I have? And I said to him, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> we don't need more than one graduate degree in our family. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, it seemed actually cheaper to apply for a patent than to send him to law school. And so I thought, you know, well, we don't have much money. I'm a grad student. Let's see how much you can learn from applying for a patent instead of going to law school. And then we got it. I mean, we knew it was original. We knew it was unique, what we were doing. But a patent seems so foreign. You know, we're just not business people. And so at that moment, we started looking for mentors in our community to help us start building a business. No matter what, you know, most people start with a business plan and then get a patent. Not us. We got a patent and we were like, oh, no, now what? Now what do we do with this? That's good stuff, though. So definitely we relied on our SBDC, our Small Business Development Center. Uh, we relied on our regional, county, and you know local partners uh, to point us in the right direction. And in Pennsylvania, there's this group called Ben Franklin Technology Partners who actually helped advise us and helped invest in our company when we were really young. Um, so... Yeah. Small business resources are so fundamental to starting starting a business like we have. Well, that's pretty fascinating all in its of itself, just that bootstrapping and starting up a business and so forth. Great story. As I think about hardwood flooring, I, I kind of naturally think, gosh, what could be more sustainable? But yet you folks take it steps further in terms of sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means to you? Absolutely. You know, um, as an ecologist, I know a lot about how different forestry practices can contribute to deforestation. So, for instance, in the tropics, there's a lot of deforestation activity. Tropical lumber is problematic for reasons like that. A lot of engineered products are actually sourced in Russia from old growth forests in boreal regions. So they're not quite as sustainable here in Pennsylvania, we're surrounded with a literally green solution, and these forests need our help. You know, many of the forests in Pennsylvania have been clear-cut two or three times in the last hundred years. And what that means is out in the woods here, we have something like, you know, imagine a field full of 30-somethings at Coachella, and they just yeah. ran out of water bottles. <laughs> they're all the same age, and they're competing for resources and it's our, really our responsibility here in Pennsylvania to manage these forests so that they don't become, you know, sort of overstocked and disease prone, fire prone. So actually, when we're using sustainable forest practices here, here in Pennsylvania, the wood that we're uh, sourcing is actually helping make the forest healthier as opposed to less healthy. That's really interesting. You know, I, I think of the forests in Pennsylvania and you know, I think of aerial views and you just see these trees forever and so forth. I don't think of them as ever having been clear cut. And, and that's interesting that it's that's right. happened a couple times in the last hundred years. So Yeah, these forests have built America. Yeah. And that also contributes to our rich heritage and craftsmanship. 
So, you know, in the sense that those roots run really deep in our community as well. Uh, Cabinet making, door making, trim, you know, there's rich heritage here that we're really excited to help preserve. Wow. So of the woods that you folks are using, what what are the common species that you're using for for your flooring? So oak and maple are by far the most common. They're more common in our region as well. It used to be that people use cherry a lot, but it's sort of fallen out of favor. It might be coming back soon. And then, you know, we also obviously have walnut and hickory, but those are a little bit more rare and harder to find. Ash is one of those species that we absolutely love, but is being decimated by emerald ash borer. And so it's also becoming really rare, which is a shame. Our American history in baseball bats, axe handles, you know, some really romantic fundamental parts of American history are tied up in ash wood. And so, you know, that's sort of a sad story that hopefully has a long-term happy ending. But for now, ash is becoming really, really rare. Tell me a little bit about that. And I know this wasn't planned at all, but yeah, <laughs> no the, the, the emerald ash borer has you know, decimated yeah. forests here in Ohio as well. And that's you right. know, even, even just a lot of neighborhood trees were ash that had to be taken down. What What is going to be the answer there or is there any? Well, what you'll find among biologists and ecologists is that a lot of them are collecting seeds and putting them in long-term storage. (laughs) It is actually really common in nature for there to be pest outbreaks and for them to decimate tree populations. Obviously, in our culture, it's really important to preserve things. So we'd rather be able to preserve the ash and the elm in our communities And so what a lot of biologists are doing is just sort of planning for a a better future where emerald ash borer dies back or may, you know, make its way across the continent and then we replant them. But obviously you won't be able to get an ash floor for another hundred years. Yeah, interesting. (laughs) So it's not hopeless. It's just a long-term turnaround. Long-term, right, right. So where does your company stand today in terms of production? I mean, do you have extra capacity and so forth or... What does that look like from, you know, those bootstrapping days in the garage and everything? We have grown by leaps leaps and bounds, and it's so exciting. You know, it's hard sometimes for me to even walk in the shop and remember those days where I was rolling up my sleeves and sanding the boards. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't actually that long ago. It was five years or something, four years ago that I was sanding boards. But really, the support of a lot of our investors and our business partners has helped us grow to this point. And also what I would say is some real investment on the part of our employees. We have some incredible team members from our community who also want to see these things grow. So, you know, everybody's putting in the elbow grease and the overtime to to add value. One of my favorite stories is one of our main leaders on the manufacturing floor, AJ. One time he saw a plank come in with really unique grain and he followed it. He watched it through the whole process. And then at the end of the process, he saw that board almost not make it into that order. And he said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not going to happen. That's a really unique plank. And so he took it and he put it on top with a note to the homeowner that said, this is my favorite board. Find a good home for it. And then the clients actually wrote back and said, tell AJ thanks. We did find a special place in our floor for it. And that's that heartwarming story, right? That That really makes it feel like we're providing value, not just for our supply chain and for our clients, but also for everybody in the community who has become so engaged in what we're doing. Wow. 
So thinking about AJ and that, what do your current distribution channels look like? I mean, how are, how are you getting the product to market? Yeah, so we're absolutely shipping nationwide. We direct from our facility. You know, we would recommend that for any startup these days is it's so easy to find clients nationwide, you know, on the internet. Um, so we've shipped floors to Seattle, to Florida, to Texas. And those are really, you know, beyond the reach of most flooring companies of generations past. The flooring companies used to just distribute sort of to their neighborhood or region, or they had to pass it to a distributor who then distributed the product elsewhere. And what we're finding is enough, our, our product is easy enough for DIY homeowners to use. And so it really, because it's so accessible and we can ship nationwide, we find ourselves often just shipping directly to the job site. Wow. Well, you got me thinking because my wife and I have a fairly large room in our house that the flooring needs to be replaced and we've been trying to figure out what to do. So I love um, it. We're we're gonna be talking about this tonight, I assure you. <laughs> so what are as the chief sustainability officer there, what are your ultimate goals as they pertain to flooring and the environment and sustainability? Yeah, you know, we're seeing so much growth of green products in building materials. We were just at Green Build, which is a big conference of green building suppliers in San Francisco in early November. And there's so much growth in that industry and the Inflation Reduction Act is contributing so much to incentives for green building materials that I'm just so excited to be a part of the industry in these early days and watch the program succeed that makes sense. So, you know, our our very higher order dreams, you know, our flooring planks are removable and replaceable because they don't use nails or glue. What that means in green building products is that it's circular. So you have the opportunity to take a plank out and even return it to us for refinishing. You could refinish it yourself. We could send you a new one. So those are opportunities where since we're investing so much time and effort craftsmanship in those planks, we would love to see them again, right? We would love to even one day be able to buy your floor back and have you trade in your floor and then redeploy that floor somewhere else. And so being becoming part of the circular economy is part of our really, I think, exciting vision of the future. Wow. Very different way to think about flooring. And I think about even all the non-wood floors and, you know, they just end up landfill at some point. I mean, that's yes. literally what happens or in the case of my house, we actually were doing some remodeling and they just kept putting new layers of floor on top of one another. We had like yeah. five layers that had to be torn up and thrown away. Yeah. So common. Yeah. So, you know, it, and I had hardwood floors installed in my home once and immediately the first night after they were installed, uh, we were moving furniture into the room which involved uh, an upright piano and one of the casters on the piano stuck yep. and just left this huge gouge in my floor. And of course, Brand you know, new. In, yeah. in our locking nailed system, there was, there was really no way to repair it. So I'm fascinated by the fact that your system allows you to remove and replace individual boards. Can you kind of give us an overview of the system and how it works? Yeah, Absolutely. So we make our flooring planks out of solid wood. Uh, you know, as I mentioned from our region, we're sourcing any kind of solid North American hardwoods. We're molding dry planks into very flat 
very high precision milled boards. We have five fixed legs. And so what that means is we don't have sort of 12, 14 foot long planks. You know, we have five fixed lengths and we have rigid PVC clips that hold the boards together. So our flooring system is assembled plank to plank instead of plank to subfloor. And what that means is you can use a suction cup to remove a plank right out of the middle of the floor or several planks. You know, some folks like to think about storing things under their floors. You know, extra storage in very small homes can be at a premium. People like the idea for security if they wanted to put a safe under the floor. Uh, We had one guy who thought about sort of having little gun safes all over his house. And I said, well, but now you've got to have suction cups all over your house. I don't know if that really is going to work out the way you think it's going to work out. But it certainly is an opportunity to have more storage. And I think that, you know, so when we have those five fixed lengths, what it means is in your case with the gouged floor plank, there's always a replacement plank somewhere else in your room. And so you could take a plank from under your couch or under your under your carpet and swap it with zero downtime. You know, no new person has to come to your house, no chisel and no real repair costs, you know, until you're ready to refinish the whole thing. Wow. That is, that is really fascinating for me. So, so I'm curious as your husband and his dad kind of developed this, did they go through a lot of prototypes, you know, as they were working for this PVC clip system or did they just luck on it and do it once and it worked and you got the patent and then you started a business. I'll tell you, you know, did you ever see Crazy Old Maurice and like Beauty and the Beast? Like my father-in-law and my husband are very much that archetype, right? They have like this inventor mentality. Gotcha. And so they, they tend to be sort of holistic thinkers that just kind of implement. So we haven't gone through a lot of revisions with this particular invention. But the things that have had to be reinvented is like all of our equipment. Everything we buy needs to be fixed in some way or changed in some way. And so um, that has just gotten back to elbow grease and an attention to detail that I'm really lucky that Evan has, because that's just not my strong suit. (laughs) I'm, I'm much more into communicating, you know, sort of our overall goals and like why his level of precision is really important. You know, if you really want a floor to last a hundred years or longer, it's got to be nice in the first place. You know, if I, if I made a crappy floor plank and sent it to you and expected you to press it flat and nail it into the floor, you'd be pretty mad at me if it wasn't nailed or glued down. So, you know, if we want, we even put our floors on eBay. So, you know, folks buy our floors used. And so that's a really exciting future for what we would consider sort of furniture grade or heirloom grade hardwood floors. Wow. Well, what are some of the comments that you receive from property owners um, about your products? Yeah, you know, so there we actually are talking to two different groups of property owners. There's your typical homeowner who loves the idea of being able to move planks around their room or refinish the floor themselves, manage floods or storm damage, like, you know, on an incremental modular basis rather than replacing the whole floor. We even had a client call us and say, it happened, it happened. And we're like, what happened? And they said, we left for vacation and we watered a plant too much. It overflowed and ruined two of the flooring planks. And when we came back, we were able to suction cup up the planks and replace them ourselves. And we were like, that's amazing, yay! (laughs) (laughs) 
So our residential homeowners are definitely sort of benefiting from having a more modular flooring system that's easy enough for them to manage. But our property owners sort of in the multifamily residential side are also thinking about labor issues. They're thinking about things that are easy to address with their their residents. So let's say you have a big set of townhomes, right? And you have one manager who lives at the building or on site, and they're responsible for leaks, some plumbing, or for any sort of move out, changeover between tenants. You know, one of the reasons you wouldn't put a hardwood floor in a high-end rental is because you'd have two to four weeks of downtime between tenants in order to repair a floor that a prior tenant ruined. In this case, you know, your building manager can go in in 15 minutes, pull up the planks, charge the tenant's deposit for that, and then replace those planks. And then within hours, you have time that a new tenant could be moving in, right? So less downtime for rent, less labor cost. And if you're using the property for commercial purposes, owning the floor, because it's not nailed or glued down, it's not considered real estate. So there are uh, tax advantages even to having a floating system that you can accelerate the depreciation on that product. So there's lots of benefits either way, but we're definitely excited for anybody using our floors to be able to have the power in their own hands, right? Instead of relying on, you know, more and more people. But we also want to support our local floor refinishers and floor installers. You know, we're not leaving these guys out in the cold either. You know, we don't have local installers. We're always looking for folks who are interested in jumping on board, finding an easier way to install floors, a faster way, or even folks interested in providing services in the community to people who have floors that need to be refinished or need repairs and are unable or unwilling to do it themselves. You know, for instance, storm chasers, if you're in a neighborhood repairing hail damage, you might also have folks who have window leakage. And if you had a few stellar floor planks available, you could fix somebody's floor on the fly. So it's definitely an additional service that somebody can provide that's faster and easier than carrying around one of those big sanding, you know, machines that folks have to use in people's homes that can create dust. And there's a lot of liability, you know, in in managing someone's hardwood floor. And so we want to make those things easier on people who are providing services to provide value to the whole supply chain. This is completely aside, but have you could this potentially be used for a gym floor? That's a fantastic question. And I wish I was brave enough to say yes. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear <laughs> you. You know, I um, love everything about gyms. I love athleticism and and dancers. Dancers are often asking yeah, about our flooring. Sure. I also am reluctant to sort of today say that someone's profession or someone's health and safety when they're jumping on our floor right, or leaping right. or falling on our floor You know, one of the things uh, we don't do is recommend putting our flooring on stairs because if you fall down the stairs, we don't want you to be laying at the bottom of the stairs in a pile of our flooring. (laughs) You know, we that image. Yeah, we're confident for our floors for heavy foot traffic. We have our floors deployed at restaurants. We're confident in our floors for residential home use, lots of dogs, lots of pets, lots of children. But, you know, today just Due to experience, we're reluctant to recommend our floors in big gyms or uh, big dance facilities. Yeah, I certainly respect that. You want to have the experience first before you start 
encouraging that. Absolutely. We're a little conservative that way. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I love, you know, just your, as you sat there and talked about, you know, storm repair and restoration and the vision you have for, you know, what this would mean, you know, once it really gains significant market share. Curious, is your mind going places for other potential products that, you know, maybe could utilize some of this technology, but be a different type of product as well? Yes, absolutely. You know, we love our floors. We obviously have a commitment to solid hardwood through and through. It comes from the tree. There are people who, you know, we like to stick to our knitting. You know, we're not going to be the guy who personally launches AstroTurf with a stellar assembly system. (laughs) You know, so we are looking for partners in the industry, especially in flooring, who are interested in, in making flooring out of different materials. You know, And then beyond that, we hope to inspire a whole category of products that's more modular, more usable. You know, I personally am very invested in finding more people interested in making high quality furniture that's modular and contributes to local economies and sustainable forestry practices. You know, it's really, I believe that a huge part of our sustainable economy as it grows will become less about, you know, I was actually just talking to a business person about this and they said, you know, consumerism seems the opposite of sustainability. And so when someone does something sustainable, you'd think, you know, like the washing machines that just after five years, right? So you have to buy a new one, right? Well, and I'm like, but what if you just built something really good and really high quality that someone valued and you just charge a higher price for it? Like, couldn't you make basically the same amount of money by selling fewer, less often, but better, more expensive, you know, high value, add to living wage, grow your community. And so those are things that I feel really strongly about is helping people think more about building long-lived products in the United States and use regional supply chains to do that. And so, you know, I think that that's what sustainability means to me versus 10,000 IKEA tables that you, you know, throw away every time you move to a different apartment, right? That's not, right, right, you yeah. know, wouldn't it be nice if you had one that was for you and made for you and you cared about it? So that's what really excites me. Yeah, that's very exciting. And it, it reminds me a little bit of our approach to metal roofing as well, as far as uh, a lot of the things we talk about. And uh, I love the way that, that you describe it and put it, though. It's great. Any words of advice? So so we think a lot of our audience members are younger people, maybe newer to the construction industry in some fashion. Any words of advice for younger folks out there who might be looking to have a positive impact uh, on the world through building design, construction, remodeling? Yeah. You know, I say this a lot. You know, I have a very long academic career, but you don't need that. You just need a good pair of boxing gloves right? And a passion to get out there and fight for the right thing. You know, it's it's not easy. You know, it really isn't. It's not the easy path to go for a thing you believe in and you feel strongly about, but it doesn't require a whole lot of, of prior knowledge, you know? So never feel like there's something out there you can't learn or you can't understand. Yeah, you'll have to learn. You'll have to understand things. You'll have to ask the right questions. And sometimes you'll be embarrassed because you don't know. When I started this business, if I had been embarrassed to ask some of the questions, like, what is QuickBooks? 
and why would I do a thing like QuickBooks? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I knew that it was basic. I knew that what I was asking was so basic to business, right? Like you have to do accounting, you have to have an accountant, right? But to say something like, what is the QuickBooks, right? (laughs) Make a joke out of it, right? You don't know. And it's okay. Everybody starts somewhere. And if I didn't ask those questions, I wouldn't find the mentors we got. And that's what helped us grow. So really putting yourself out there and asking those important questions, even if you feel like this must be the dumbest thing anyone's ever asked, definitely it's worth it. And even if it doesn't end up in a successful business, you'll grow and you'll learn and you'll have contributed to to changing everyone you ask the question of, right? Maybe they'll be inspired to go ask the next dumb question. Very neat. I'm curious, thinking about young people and their integration to our businesses, reading a lot about millennials and what they value in their career and outlook on the world and so forth, and hear often that you know, it's not just this monetary driver or what they choose to spend their careers in. It's this missional component. And so uh, that they also want to have in conjunction. And curious, as you now set out building a manufacturing business and don't know a single manufacturer who's blessed with a surplus of people, curious if that sustainability mission being such a fabric of your business has do you feel like that has helped with your recruitment and team member engagement, especially with those on the younger end of the spectrum? Sustainability, no. However, our, so sustainability in terms of like, let's say lowering carbon emissions, not relevant to our our employees. Like they may think about it once in a while when they hear me go on about it. (laughs) Our carbon footprint, please recycle. Yeah, blah, 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 (laughs) Bredas. But I think it's clear when we're uh, investing in living wages when we're investing in people's careers, that we we make it evident as part of our philosophy that when rich lawyers retire to Maine and they buy a floor, a kid in Tyrone goes to camp, right? <laughs> There's no broken parts of that. You know, we we don't drive a Lexus, you know, we don't we don't have, you know, enormous cars. Like we also are evidently invested in in growing this business. And so that is a sustainable community, right? And when we started the business and we thought about what we wanted to see grow, was it our pocketbooks? Was it our investment portfolio? And we had a, my son was born two and a half years ago. And in the midst of it, you know, we keep thinking, even someone asked, you know, okay, well, you're investing in living wages today, but what when, when you're a big company down the road and you're this big giant, what about then? And I'm like, I don't know, man. Today's the hardest day to pay you the, heart, the living wage, right? Today is when I'm strapped, right? This is when it is hardest for me to pay you living wage. If I become a big corporation, you better believe I'm going to think it's easy. Right? <laughs> so that permeates everything about our culture you know, to the point where, you know, our employees care enough about the craft and about the natural material that we have folks coming over to me this week and even holding two planks up side by side and saying, can you tell the difference between the two? I'm like, no, I can't. And they're like, this one's crap. (laughs) And then they leave. (laughs) And so, you know, you know, noticing things that like I don't even still notice, you know, it's a value add. That when I look at my son and I think, would I rather him grow up with money 
or with a community, I would 10 out of 10 always choose. I'd want him to grow up in a community that's a healthy community. And you can't buy a healthy community. You have to grow one, right? You can buy a lonely island, but you can't buy a community. And so that's that's where we're putting our investments. Beautiful. Thank you. So there's such great leadership lessons there of, yeah, building a culture where everyone feels like they're in the same boat, you know, and a valuable part of it rather than you all just using the rest of them to row your way to wherever you want to be. So, yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Even though some days I fantasize about it, right? You know, <laughs> sure. oh, only I had a yacht. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been great. Well, thank you very much. We're close to wrapping up what we call the business end of things. But um, is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to uh, uh, share with our audience here yet? No, I think, you know, just every time you get a chance to support someone making something, support the makers in your community, support the people investing in jobs and growth, you know, let's link arms and build, you know, local jobs or green jobs. We can all agree, you know, low carbon footprint that crosses the aisle, you know, for us, forestry jobs, local jobs, they are sustainable jobs. And so I think that there's a lot of growing that we can do by coming together as communities to make stuff that's worth buying and stuff that's worth making. Well, that's good stuff. And I know that, you know, I hear that a lot from our team members, too, uh, that in manufacturing, they are just so captivated and driven by that idea of making something local that, you know, may end up wherever. But that idea of making something very cool. Well, before we close out, I am obligated to ask you if you'd like to participate in something we call our rapid fire questions. So these are seven questions, Britta. They may be a little serious, maybe a little more silly. All you got to do is provide a quick answer. And uh, of course, our audience understands you have no idea what we're going to ask you if you agree to this. So what is it? Are you up to the challenge of rapid fire? (laughs) I'm in. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, Seth and I will alternate asking the questions. I will be the gentleman and let Seth go first. All right. Well, thank you very much. First rapid fire question. If someone asked the first grade Britta what she wanted to do when she grew up, what would her answer have been? I absolutely know this answer because my mom cut out a newspaper article from our local neighborhood newspaper where I won a coloring contest. And I said I wanted to be a farmer. Isn't that cool, though? Look where you've ended yeah. up. There's, That's there's, what I keep I'm, saying. I'm I, just look at that. this. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> that is awesome. Uh, question number two, what is your bucket list vacation? Oh, you know, I would love to take my husband to Hawaii. I've been, but he is, and I'm not a beach person, but he is a beach person. And so I know it's nothing but suffering for me, but I know he'll love it. <laughs> You're talking to two very big fans of Hawaii. So, yes, we understand. Oh, good. So you're like, definitely do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. All right. Next question. What is a movie you have seen that really made you laugh? Incredibles 2. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm telling the truth when. That's a great one. That is that is a compromise movie in our house where one of the movies Daddy's Okay Watching on Disney Plus. So, yeah, we'll, we'll go to it for a family night. So, yeah, get it. I'm coming to love this question. So, who would you want on your team if you were in, an, in a zombie apocalypse? 
this is tough because my husband's whole family is extremely utility focused. It's my mother-in-law. Absolutely. She (laughs) is 73, 74. And she just went just a couple months ago on a like 10 day rafting trip down. Wow. uh, Down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. So yeah, like you you guys ain't got nothing on my team because <laughs> my mother-in-law and she also has to care about my survival because she loves my son the most. So, wow. you know, she'll care about me too. <laughs> <laughs> that is an awesome man. I we've asked that question three times now, and I've just got I love hearing people's responses. Um, very, very cool. Good stuff. Awesome. If you could go back and spend a day with anyone in history, who would it be? Oof. It all depends on my mindset, right? We've been talking so much about Nikola Tesla around here as an inventor. I actually have a thing for poets. Is that weird? Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot. There's a bunch of um, sort of mid-century poets that are sort of like wartime poets that I really connect with. And I've never figured out why. So it's a mystery. Like, would I like this person? I like how they say things. So it's mostly like I could end up there and be like, oh, these guys are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not sure. Like, do you go back in time to like meet someone you're sure you'd like or somebody who like (laughs) could be a toss up like Walt Disney, right? Probably a jerk, right? What are you going to do? (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Get it. Good. Good answer. Okay, I think we're up to our next to last question. If you had to choose between being a dog or a cat, which would you choose to be? This is a tough one. We have both, and me and the cat are at odds right now. So I have to pick the dog. (laughs) My cat absolutely loves my husband more, and she gives me this dirty look every time she sees me. And I'm like, all right. Well, and I've had cats that love me, but this one does not. And so I picked dog. <laughs> you, you might win, win that cat over. It was funny. My wife and I have a dog right now that we joke when we got her. She, I was her person. I mean, I was the one she wanted to be with. And now it's the complete opposite. She wants to be with Lisa every moment if she pops. <laughs> oh, things change. Who knows why? All right. Last question. Do you prefer working from home or the office? 100% the office. I'm a social creature. I absolutely love water cooler talk. And so for me, it's always really hard to, like, I love the infinite ability to, like, connect with folks like you guys over the internet. But it's very easy for me to feel isolated at home. Hear you there. Well, this has been very good. Oh, I will let everyone know we were all successful on our challenge words. Uh, (laughs) Seth, you had the word rhubarb. Yeah, you worked it in well. I had the word aerial. And Britta, you had two words, actually. St. Nick. Yep. St. Nick. (laughs) So I don't know if the audience heard those and wondered about them, but we worked them all in. So that's cool. (laughs) So Britta, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, we have a website, floorsbystellar.com. And on Instagram and YouTube, you can find us at Stellar Floors. It's S-T-E-L-L-E-R because my last name's Teller and my husband's last name is Stover. And we mash them together as a joke. 
and then it's stuck. And so we're stellar floors, <laughs> misspelled and everything, S-T-E-L-L-E-R. So floorsbystellar.com. Awesome. Very good. Well, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure and a lot of fun. I appreciate it, guys. It's so much fun to talk with folks who are all sort of focused on similar industry uh, developments and disruptions. That's true. That's true. Well, thank you to, to our audience for tuning into this episode of Construction Disruption with Britta Teller of Stellar Floors. Please watch for future episodes of our podcast. We are always blessed with great guests. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Um, until the next episode, though, change the world for someone. Make them smile. Encourage them. Powerful, simple things you can do to change the world. In the meanwhile, God bless. Take care. This is Isaiah Industries signing off. Until the next episode of Construction Disruption.